Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. 100 years ago this week, America was gripped in fear and panic. In a span of two weeks, five people were attacked and four were killed as a result of the first shark attacks in modern U.S. history. Known as a destination for the debonair, the Jersey Shore became the scene of a bloody collision of man versus beast that would ultimately inspire the literary and cinema classic Jaws. Most shockingly of all were the deaths of two people in a shallow tidal creek over 30 miles from the open ocean. The search for the Jersey Maneater would eclipse World War I in newspaper coverage that summer, and a century later the culprit remains unknown. On this episode, we discuss the Jersey Shore Shark Attacks of 1916. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is a very special Don't Go in the Water edition of Wartime. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 5 of the series, we're discussing Battlegrounds, the who, what, where, when, and why of some of the most epic showdowns in history. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter by searching Wartime Podcast or at Brady Kreitzer. You can visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer, Join the conversation. The community is always growing. You can visit my author's website, bradykreitzer.com, for news, updates, and events. We have a lot coming up. I hope to see you soon. And, of course, your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. In Season 5, we're discussing battles, epic battles. And I think today's episode, and this is going to require some spin, absolutely fits into that mold. Now hear me out. 100 years ago this week, I'm talking about the first two weeks of July, 1916, New Jersey, New York, and really all of the American world was shocked and horrified and absolutely hypnotized, enthralled by a series of shark attacks that occurred off the coast of New Jersey. Shark attacks. In the uh, weeks subsequent that followed, uh, paranoia, hysteria, and I think a lasting cultural legacy of fear has remained. But while this is a history podcast about battles, I would argue that this battle, man versus beast, if you would, has all of the important hallmarks that we look for when we study a battle. Because remember, a battle is about more than just the event itself, but much more importantly, what leads up to it and what the result is. So for that reason, I'd like to spend this week's episode talking about uh, the 1916 New Jersey shark attacks, uh, because it is the 100th anniversary, and if you live nearby in the New York, New Jersey area, you can go there. They're going to have a big monument uh, dedicated to the event Uh, coming up in the next few weeks, if you're listening uh, currently. If not, I think there's just a lot of interesting things to learn about it. And I also think 
you'll explore a few elements of history or parts of history uh, that we may not think of as traditional history, but very much, again, fits the mold. So, uh, without further ado, let's get started. Before you can understand the importance uh, of shark attacks in New Jersey on their own, uh, you need to have the world in which they occur down pretty well. You need to understand that. Because there's much more to it than what it sounds like. Let me say, first, uh, personally, I love South Jersey. Really, all of New Jersey, but especially South Jersey. I have really strong uh, roots there. Not from my family, but uh, I have vacationed there most of my life. All over South Jersey. So, for me, this story is something that uh, really sort of rings true because I've been to a lot of these places and not really understood the, the history of it. Over time, uh, I learned to, and I hope you will in a little bit tonight as well. Uh, but New Jersey in the early 20th century is a happening, happening place. This really was brought to the forefront recently with the development of the HBO series Boardwalk Empire. Uh, now, I think Steve Buscemi's great in it. There's a great supporting cast. But the thing I love about that show, because the history is, you know, it's Hollywood. Uh, but the thing I love about that show is how they show southern New Jersey at its really golden age, at its high point. Southern New Jersey, in many ways, was the playground of America's East Coast. Even more than that, it was considered one of the most luxurious destinations, really, in all of North America. Now, if you're following the events in Atlantic City today, bless your heart, Atlantic City, you know it's a little bit of a different environment now. Atlantic City is not in a good place. I go there every summer. I'm going there this summer, in a few weeks, as a matter of fact. Uh, I do it out of tradition, almost more than anything else, uh, but I do want to do my part to give a little bit of my money to stimulate the economy of old AC. But South Jersey has a history of being a resort community, first and foremost. There's no gambling in South Jersey in 1916. At least, we can say, not legalized gambling. There's tons of gambling on the Jersey Shore. But it's done in back rooms. Uh, there's prostitution. There's lots of alcohol. It is considered to be, again, a, sort of a good time for all if you consider those things part of a good time. But they certainly were in 1916. All of South Jersey, uh, this is even before the boardwalk, uh, was one massive resort hotel after another. Uh, Southern New Jersey really gets its start uh, when very wealthy people from Philadelphia view it as a potential moneymaker. Uh, a railroad is eventually built, and after the railroad's built that goes from Philadelphia uh, to the Jersey Shore, you see resorts and hotels pop up all over the place. Atlantic City is the big one. And again, this is an Atlantic City that, if you've seen the HBO series Boardwalk Empire, uh, it's violent and dramatic, but you get a pretty good sense of what it's all about. But it's not the only resort. There's resorts to its north, and of course to its south is the big swanky resort of Cape May. Now a couple things are going to play into this. 
America's at a turning point in 1916, and, and actually, America's always sort of at a turning point. It's just if you see it or not. But it's a big one, and it's a turning point in what we can think of as leisure time. For most of American history, since shark attacks are the topic of the day, we have very few examples of sharks attacking people. Notice I said most of American history, not most of history. Anyone who sailed for a living, anyone who made their living in or around the sea, in uh, Asia, in Africa, uh, in Europe, would tell you that sharks can and will attack people. But that was not a belief that most American scientists had at the time. Because in their opinion, they had no evidence that it ever happened. When it finally does happen, as we'll talk about today, the panic, the chaos, the madness, the paranoia is enormous. Because it's not safe to go in the water anymore. I think I can prove pretty conclusively by the end of today's episode that the paranoia was just that. And the events of 1916 were nothing more than par for the course in terms of shark attacks here in uh, the Atlantic coast. But South Jersey, the Jersey Shore, really all of it, uh, was a happening place for the rich and the poor. And something new started to happen in 1916 that hadn't happened before. It was that people were swimming in the ocean for the first time recreationally. And I want you to think about that. One of the things that has always struck me about historic sites on the East Coast is that for all the major happenings on the coast, uh, very few people actually swam in the ocean for fun. I mean, think about that. You don't see the pilgrims swimming in the ocean for fun. Uh, for them, that's a place you want to get the heck away from because it's a very dangerous place. But it kind of tells you something about where America is in the early 20th century that people will by the thousands, dive into the ocean and swim for the first time. If you were an aristocrat from Philadelphia or New York City, uh, Connecticut, the major metro areas that really brought the guests to the Jersey Shore, you wouldn't swim in the ocean. You would go for long, leisurely strolls, uh, leave it to the poor working class to swim in the ocean. But even that's starting to change now. Bathing suits are becoming more common. Ocean swimming is no longer a label for the lower class, or at least not one that the lower class is afraid of having. The Roaring Twenties are not quite here yet, but there is a big major event going on in the background of all of this. It's the Great War, World War I, the most terrible and destructive event in human history. Until the next one. So that's going to play into this too. I think there's an element of fear and paranoia already at work. I think this region is charged and primed for a crisis. There have, in 1916, been examples of German U-boats, German submarines, emerging off the coast of New Jersey. They weren't war submarines, they were carrying cargo, but still, they're there. So people, I think, are already looking at the water in a very suspicious way. As we'll see moving forward, the events of 1916 regarding our shark friends uh, are going to be caused by a number, or maybe you can say a collusion of events, uh, that I think merit some real intense study. But when you think of the Jersey Shore, don't think of it as Snooky and JWoww and, and, and inappropriate t-shirt shops. Think of it as the wealthy and poor's new playground. 
where people from all walks of life are coming together and all for the first time jumping into the ocean by the thousands. And that will give you a pretty good setup for today's discussion. As I said previously, this story begins in July of 1916. Now, July of 1916 has a few things about it that are very important. The most important, I think, is that July of 1916, really the whole summer of 1916, is one of the hottest summers on record. Certainly one of the hottest in the hundred years before that. And that's going to scientifically play into the story. But our story is going to begin just north of Atlantic City. Uh, at the very southern tip of Long Beach Island, if you're familiar with the Jersey Shore, Long Beach Island, uh, you can see it on a map. I'll put it on the Facebook and Twitter. Uh, at a very southern tip at a resort called Beach Haven. At Beach Haven, you have, again, the potent mix of people I've been talking about. Wealthy families from New York City, and even more so, wealthy families from Philadelphia. One of these families that arrive at Beach Haven on July 1st, uh, is that of a wealthy, prominent doctor. The family's name is Van Zant. Now, you can imagine how this story goes. It's almost a Hollywood epic. After all, this is the story that will inspire Peter Benchley to write the book Jaws, and, of course, for the hit movie to be made after it. Uh, but the Van Zant family uh, is, that, is headed by a wealthy and well-respected doctor. Uh, he's got daughters and one son, and because it's 1916, and it might as well be the Stone Age, let's face it, uh, there is no expectation that his daughters will become anything but good Edwardian women. That is, they keep their mouths shut, they don't speak out of turn, and they don't, don't involve themselves in education or politics. Uh, so, the son of the Van Sant family, Charles Van Sant, is his father's pride and joy. Now, he wants to teach his son to be a man, so he takes him to athletic clubs and lifts weights and uh, makes him go in the steam bath with all of his father's naked friends. Again, Charles Van Zandt, the son, is 25, so uh, he's, you know, this is totally normal, right? That happens to everybody. Uh, but uh, obviously, you know, Charlie Van Zandt doesn't want a lot to do with that. What he does like to do is what the modern young people do. Uh, that's party, have a good time, and of course... Uh, go to the beach. On July 1st, 1916, Charles Van Zandt is showing off for, of course, women and men alike. Uh, he's popular, he's athletic, uh, and he jumps into the sea at Beach Haven. Now, because ocean swimming is sort of a new thing and still very much in vogue, one of the things people tend to do at this time, uh, and I'm not one of the people that's going to pretend to understand this, is dive into the ocean and swim as far as you possibly can and then turn back. It's the equivalent of long-distance running if long-distance running was designed to impress your friends. It's really, really strange. I'm not going to pretend like it's okay. I obviously didn't grow up in a beach community, uh, but this is an era before surfing and, and jet skis are really a, a thing yet. Uh, so it's long-distance swimming, whatever, to each his own. Uh, at any rate, Charlie Van Zant jumps in the water. He swims out pretty far. Joining him is a dog that he just randomly found on the beach. Uh, again, totally normal thing. Uh, the dog will swim out uh, and stop shortly after 
The swim begins. Van Zant sort of pitches this like a race. He's going to race the dog for his friend's enjoyment. The dog turns around. Why does the dog turn around? Well, he knows something that Van Zant doesn't, that there is an enormous shark in the water with them. As Van Zant turns around, people on the shore see the dorsal fin appear, uh, and the shark suddenly bites into Charles Van Zant's leg. It completely strips his left leg of meat from the hip to the knee, uh, which, as we'll see, will prove to be a fatal wound. Lifeguards and friends begin to pull Van Zant out of the water. They're not that far out, and the shark won't release. So it becomes like a very, I think you can say, sort of macabre, messed up tug of war with Charles Van Zandt's body being the rope. Uh, again, this is the first recorded shark attack in modern American history. Many people on the beach come to see the ghastly spectacle. The water is red, as you can imagine. This isn't happening a mile out. The attack happens. Because, again, Van Zant turns around when the dog turns around. Less than 20 yards from the shore. The fact of the matter is the vast majority of shark attacks uh, happen 10 feet from the, the shore and about 3 feet of water. This animal was very similar. We don't know for sure what kind of shark this was. But, given that it struck in open water on the Jersey coast, thinking it as a great white shark uh, is not a stretch. Uh, it seemed to be very big. It seemed to fit the profile and coloration and size and mannerisms of a shark. As they were dragging Van Zandt out of the water, he was bleeding profusely. His father was trying to save him. You're not dealing with modern medicine. No one's preparing for this, almost a warlike injury on a beach resort. Uh, Charlie Van Zandt will bleed out. He'll die as a result of this. And he actually dies in uh, one of the swanky hotels that he was staying at. So this becomes big news. Wealthy debutante son killed by a shark. Those are the headlines. And this has never happened before. And as we'll see, it's going to also happen again. Now looking at the sources of this, newspaper accounts, survivor accounts, eyewitnesses, um, you'll see that when Van Zandt was being pulled out of the water being worked on, some of the spectators claimed uh, that the large shark was actually lingering in the water, not far away, as though he was waiting for Van Zandt to come back in or going to strike him again. And this is highly unusual. No one in 1916 has any experience with a shark attack. But today, biologists and ichthyologists uh, know that it's a common predatory technique uh, used to uh, preserve energy uh, for large animals. The idea is bite them, let them bleed out, they can't fight you after that, and then go and eat them. Shark attacks were unknown at this time. In fact, members of the scientific community refused to believe this was a shark. Uh, but now we know that's actually quite common. Um, and New Jersey is sort of set on edge. A man was killed by a shark. What they don't know is that this will be the first of five attacks that will come in the next two weeks. Now, a couple things about the great white shark. Great white sharks uh, do not sleep. They do not stop. They have to constantly move. If they stop moving, they die. What generates their movement? Well, they need energy to move, so they have to eat. 
So the great white shark basically is moving all the time and eating all of the time. It's an eating machine. It exists to munch and to propel itself forward. And every once in a while they have babies. When you keep that in mind, an attack like this is not unusual. And although nobody thought great white sharks actually went beyond Cape Hatteras at this time, uh, as we'll see and we still see today, they absolutely do. So this will play into this as well. Moving forward, paranoia uh, emerges. Uh, people are start to worry. Is the beach safe? Is this a freak accident? Or will this happen again? Well, there are reports, again, looking back in hindsight from fishermen off the coast of New York and New Jersey who claim that large sharks were in the area. And I want you to remember that. They didn't say a large shark. They said large sharks. Multiple fishermen reported this. That will be important as we move forward. Five days after Charlie Van Zandt is killed by a shark, we're going to move forward about 50 miles up the Jersey coast north to another resort town, a resort town called Spring Lake. Not as big as Beach Haven, but still a busy resort town. And at that particular point, Spring Lake, you have a number of people doing long-distance swimming. In fact, two of the best long-distance swimmers actually swam that day. And they were the talk of the resort. Now, that's a real problem for some people in the resort, especially a hotel worker named Charles Bruder. He was 27 years old. Charles Bruder was the sort of resident long-distance swimmer. And again, don't ask me why long-distance swimming is considered to be entertainment, uh, but whatever. Michael Phelps would have been the man back then. Um, but Charlie Bruder is upset. You have these outsiders coming into his resort. They're doing the long-distance swimming. That's his thing. You know how this goes. Uh, so that night, Charles Bruder jumps in the water, and he swims uh, several yards out, 150 yards roughly, away from the shore. And everyone's amazed by this once again. Uh, as he's doing that, he has two people on the beach watching him. Both of them work for him at the hotel. They're all on break. And suddenly, a large shark sweeps directly up from the bottom, eyewitnesses say this, and attacks Bruder from below. Uh, this was not an angled attack, this was a completely vertical attack. It was a rush forward. Uh, if you've ever seen a great white shark strike a seal in the ocean, this is a very common move of theirs. They don't move very fast all the time, but they can move really fast a little bit of a time. Uh, sharks do this Lions do this, and bears do this, uh, but Charles Bruder is the target. When the shark attacks him, it thrusts him into the air. The shark will go with him and go back in the water. And the large splash they both make coming back down is what draws, people attention, draws people's attention out. One woman yells that uh, a man in a red canoe has capsized. And the lifeguards are suddenly on attention. Well, she's not seeing a red canoe. She's seeing Bruder's blood fill the water. So the iconic scene of, of Jaws that we're so familiar with in shark attacks, uh, the shark attacks and red blood goes everywhere, that really happened. Again, this is the film that kind of starts it all. Lifeguards will rush out to Bruder. They'll pull him into the water. And he'll be shouting, A shark has bitten me. A shark has bitten me. When they pull him up into the boat, they pull him very quickly because 
they expect him to be the weight of a normal man. He was a big guy. Uh, and he comes into the boat very easily because the shark has took a huge bite out of his abdomen and completely severed off his legs. Uh, that's a big animal to do that kind of damage. It took one leg off below the knee and one leg off just above the knee. Uh, he dies, obviously, of blood loss on the beach. Animals that big. Sharks that big. To do the kind of damage uh, that that shark did to Bruder, that is to bite off both of his legs in only a short amount of time, will require a very big, gaping maw. Uh, that is to say, a shark with a huge bite radius. There are over a hundred different species of sharks off the coast of the Atlantic, especially the Jersey Shore. That sounds almost certainly like the attack of a great white shark. All the hallmarks are there, and again, they're not unusual. On Bruder's death certificate, the doctor will write, uh, killed by a shark. It's the first time ever that on a death certificate in modern American history, killed by shark is listed as the cause of death. So this is a really big deal. Charlie Van Zant was never listed as the cause of death killed by shark because there's too much speculation as to what killed him. Major scientists were all in agreement it was not a shark because conventional wisdom was that sharks do not attack people. They said maybe it was a killer whale. Uh, maybe it was a swordfish, and of course my favorite, maybe it was a giant sea turtle. All of those to them were acceptable conclusions. None of them believed that a shark could be the culprit. Uh, very obvious to us, very strange to them. So now you have a pattern. Now you have uh, a greater threat. Now you have exactly the kind of thing that a community already on the edge can grasp a hold of and and really run with, and newspapers do. World War I was the front page news during this time. Any battles, any reports from the front lines. Believe it or not, these two shark attacks became headline news, front page news, in the major New York newspapers. Um, you can't make this up, but these are, again, really the first two recorded shark attacks uh, in modern American history. There were some from the 19th century, but very, very few, and none that really saw death as the outcome. So here's where this story gets really strange, and in my opinion, in my opinion, why we're even talking about it today. 100 years later, a monument will stand at the location of the events we're about to talk about. You had an attack in South Jersey. You had another attack, again, about 45 miles north. We're about to see our third, fourth, and fifth attacks 30 miles north of that. Right on the Raritan Bay, along a creek called the Matawan Creek. And again, here's where the story becomes very perplexing, and also, I think, very uh, compelling. The Raritan Bay sits directly below uh, New York City, if you're not familiar with it. The water is not beautiful and crystal clear, as you'd see in the Caribbean. It's brown, and it's very Jersey, you could say that. Uh, and if you've been there, you know what I mean. But within Raritan Bay uh, are a series of tidal creeks. 
They're not very big, and they're not very deep, and they run about 30 to 40 miles inland. Along these creeks are tiny little towns that are just sort of scraping out a living. They look much more like Midwestern towns, like a town you'd see in Iowa or uh, Kansas, not necessarily a town you'd associate with a bustling place like the Jersey Shore, because they're not on the shore. They're 30 miles inland. Two weeks after the initial attack, on Wednesday, July 12th, a group of young boys are playing along the Matawan Creek. This is not unusual. It happens all the time. I'll send out some pictures on the Facebook, on the Twitter. Uh, the Twitter, I think my my grandpap says that, uh, on Twitter. Uh, and you can see, this is not like the Mississippi River. Uh, this is a, 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 a creek that's about 30 to 40 feet wide. Uh, at its deepest, it's maybe 10 to 12 feet. I mean, this is small. The water is dark, almost black, uh, and it is brackish. So it does have salt in it, not enough to be considered salt water. But a group of boys are playing on the Matawan Creek. Uh, again, nothing strange there. And they're on their way out of the creek. It's a hot day, July 12th, uh, when one of the boys, a boy named Lester Stillwell, uh, says to the others, watch me float, watch me float, and he jumps back into the water. As he's floating, an enormous mouth comes out of the very small creek, mind you, and pulls him under. His, his fellow mates are shocked, they're terrified. Uh, Lester will not come back up. And they run into town and say, a shark has eaten our friend. This is almost unbelievable. This creek is not the ocean. No fish come up this creek from the ocean. Certainly not an enormous shark. But the fact of the matter is something pulled Lester under the water. How do we know it was a shark and not a giant turtle or, you know, whatever? Uh, well, again, this is a maritime community, even though it's 30 miles inland. Uh, there are a lot of people who are working there and living there. Uh, who know exactly what they're looking at. One of those people uh, was an old sea captain named Thomas Cottrell. And Cottrell was taking his own leisurely walk uh, out of Keyport, New Jersey, along the Matawan Creek, and he, to his shock, saw a giant shark swimming through the river. Uh, so he ran up to town, he told everybody, everyone laughed at him, no one paid attention, and because of that, a young boy died. Now, when help arrives... To save Lester Stillwell. No one is really thinking shark. Yeah, old Cottrell said there was a shark. And yes, the kids said there was a shark. Uh, but Lester Stillwell was prone to seizures. He, he was epileptic. So most believe he had a seizure in the water and drowned as a result. When this happens, when help finally arrives at 2 p.m., a local businessman named Watson Stanley Fisher, 24 years old, jumps in the water to find him. He knows Lester's probably dead, but he's going to try to find him anyway. And Fisher sort of has a reputation of being uh, one of these younger up-and-comers in the community who the kids all love. He knows Lester. He knows the boys. He trusts them. He wants to find them. What he does, as it turns out, is nothing short of heroic. Because after searching around in the water, and again, it's a small creek, townspeople line up on both sides of the water, Fisher finds Lester's body. He begins to pull it up, 
And even though everyone is very saddened that the boy is dead, they are happy that they found him. What Fisher didn't realize was the boy uh, was still well within range of the animal that killed him. And the shark will next, in front of at least 20 people, uh, strike Fisher, who's trying to save the boy's remains. So in front of all these witnesses, a shark attack happens live. Now, we've seen this before. We know the M.O. Fisher is probably too big for the shark to consume. Poor little Lester wasn't, unfortunately. Most of his body was gone. And this animal will bite onto his leg and, again, shear the, the meat right off of it. Uh, and uh, Fisher will bleed to death. But what he did was heroic. He really literally gave his life to try and even save the lifeless remains of a boy that he cared about. So um, Watson Stanley Fisher, one of the heroes of the story, but he's dead. He's killed uh, by this, what they called, uh, sea monster or giant fish. About 30 minutes later, the shark will flee the area. It will stay in the Matawan Creek, in this tiny tidal creek. And again, go to the Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer. Go to Twitter, Wartime Podcast, at Brady Kreitzer. You won't believe the images of what the Matawan Creek looks like. And they will attack another another victim, the final victim, five, a 14-year-old boy named Joseph Dunn. Joseph looked like he was going to suffer a very similar fate. The animal latched onto his leg, took a lot of the... Uh, muscle and meat off of it. His friends were there, pulled him out. They actually jumped in the water and started hitting the thing, uh, which is probably what saved his life. He'd stay in the hospital for another three months, uh, but he did survive. And he's the only survivor of the five people that were attacked by this animal. And paranoia again sweeps all over. The president orders a seek and destroy uh, on the animal. This is during World War One, mind you. He puts a large bounty on the animal. Newspapers go absolutely bonkers over this. Uh, sharks are now public enemy number one. Fast forward to July 14th. Now, just two days after those three attacks we've mentioned, back out in Raritan Bay, uh, just off the coast of New Jersey. There's a fisherman named Michael Schleiser. Uh, who's fishing in a very small boat with a very small net under his boat. And a giant shark, almost 10 feet long, gets entangled in it. It starts to pull his boat away. It starts to tear at the seams of his boat. It's a big fish. He and his partner beat the shark to death with oars, bring it on shore, and cut it open. So the scene you see in the movie Jaws, that actually happens. Uh, what Schleiser finds inside the shark is pretty ghastly. He finds about 15 pounds of human muscle, small human bones, uh, and one large male rib. And he very boldly declares, I've killed the shark that's been terrorizing the coast of New Jersey. That's the end of the story, at least as the mayors and civic leaders of the Jersey Shore are concerned uh, because they want this thing to be gone. Their beaches are their livelihood and people are afraid to swim. There's some problems with that story, though. It makes for a likely ending, but there's some issues. Number one, uh, almost immediately, Schleiser uh, uh, stuffs the fish 
He's also a taxidermist on the side, and he puts it in the display of a major newspaper in the window in Manhattan. People walk by and see it. And of course, the fish disappears, as do the bones and the flesh that went along with it. When one doctor ultimately did look at the bones, uh, a person who knew what he was doing, let's face it, medicine isn't what it, what it is today back then, but basic anatomy and physiology uh, are in place. Uh, that doctor actually didn't think the bones belonged to a child at all. They believed the bones belonged to a very big man who had been dead for some time. If that great white shark, almost 10 feet long, was what they called the, quote, Jersey man-eater, then he should have had the remains of Lester Stilwell uh, and, and Fisher in his belly. Uh, of course, in an age of genetic testing, we could figure that out pretty easily today, but all the evidence vanishes. And so does the definitive answer on this series of 1916 New Jersey shark attacks. Now, I'm going to step away from that story. I think it's a neat one. If you're in the area, uh, go to the commemoration. It's coming up if you're listening uh, as we as we post this. Uh, and I'm going to maybe slay some sacred cows here. Um, I'm certainly not making news because I don't think enough people care to say that. But in my interpretation, I don't know that you have a real conclusion to this story. Here's how I see it. There is no reason to believe. There's been two books written on this. Uh, I've read them both in preparation for this show. The preparation is a long one for these shows. Don't think I just throw this together. Um, But both books are pretty well convinced that Schleiser's Great White Shark is the killer of all of these people. And their basic story is the shark gets a taste for human blood and goes on a killing spree. And that's exactly what newspapers want. They want to make this a story. They want to make this something that makes you afraid. They want to capture people's imaginations. Uh, But to do that, you need this to be one shark. It really can't be many sharks. It has to be one. But I've seen nothing to indicate that it was one shark. Uh, I think that the attacks on Van Zandt uh, and Bruder in open water in the Atlantic Ocean were almost certainly great white shark attacks. And who knows, maybe even the same great white shark. But maybe not. But again, what makes the story so compelling and so so terrifying, sort of pervasive, the idea that it can happen anywhere, is the fact that three people were attacked and two were killed in a small tidal creek 30 miles from the ocean. I mean, 30 miles from the ocean. It's nowhere in sight. And the ocean's greatest predator can even be there. I haven't seen sufficient evidence to say that a great white shark actually swam up the the Matawan Creek and killed anybody. Okay? Uh, Can sharks do that? Yes. Did they? I don't know. That's a pretty big stretch for me. What if you're not talking about one shark attacking five people, but... A few different sharks attacking five people in a short period of time. Is that as compelling a story as this desperate hunter wreaking havoc? I don't think so. But that's what newspapers wanted, so that's what they gave us. Um, There was a ripe fruit to be picked there uh, in terms of fear, because that sells newspapers. Some have speculated that uh, a shark like a bull shark who can live in fresh water, great white sharks can't, by the way, did go up the creek and did attack those people. Not a great white, but a bull shark. And maybe even that 
that's a different shark altogether than the previous two. I think that makes a lot of sense. Now, could a great white shark have gone up that creek? Well, some scientists, and it's still a debate, would say yes. They would say that it was a full moon. That's true. Uh, which meant that the ocean was at high tide, which put more salt in the Matawan Creek that could have fostered a desperate and hungry and confused great white shark. But I think it's much more reasonable that these are uh, separate, isolated incidents, not one common incident. And I'll tell you why. 1916, again, was one of the hottest years on record since they'd been keeping it. And so was 2015. 2015 is now the hottest year on record. It will be replaced by 2016, and it will be replaced by 2017, and that's an ending you don't want to know. If 1916... Uh, was such a hot season, and 2015, last year, was such a hot season, I think we can draw some important parallels here. If you recall in 2015, shark attacks were considered an epidemic. It was a media frenzy, uh, if you remember that. Uh, because in 2015, in a matter of a few months, eight people were attacked by sharks off the coast of North Carolina. Eight. In Florida, over that summer... 30 people were attacked by sharks. 30. So 30 people were attacked by sharks in 2015 in Florida. Eight are attacked by sharks in one summer uh, in 2015 in North Carolina. And that's like, you know, just blasé news. But five people attacked in 1916 is considered one of the most famous shark attacks of all time. Again, the the... Interesting quality, the hook, so to speak, boy, that's a bad fish pun, right? Uh, is that it was the same shark. But if you ask me, uh, and you look at the prevalence of shark attacks off the coast of New Jersey, four in one year is actually pretty low. Now, it was the first four, granted, but uh, five in one year is actually pretty low. Now, of course, it was the first five. Uh, but five in one year is, th I think, something most beach communities would accept. Uh, five shark attacks in a year. Again, Florida last year had 30. So uh, keep that in mind. But I think this gets to the heart of the age. 1916, World War I. Uh, there's, this, there's this fear. There's this need for information. Newspapers are really, you know... Jumping the shark, har, 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 uh, in their coverage of a lot of things. And this one is just ripe for it. But the fact of the matter is people did lose their lives. Uh, this event did encapsulate America at the time. And it did lead to a different battle because sharks have been paying the price ever since. It convinced American scientists for the first time that, guess what, sharks will attack people. Ask the Australians, they could have told you that a lot earlier. And saved you a lot of terrible events. Uh, but I think it, it kind of lets us hold a mirror up to ourselves and to America in the early 20th century. And for that reason, and because it's the 100th anniversary this week and next week, I think the New Jersey shark attacks of 1916 are a worthy study. Uh, and I think they can, with some fudging, fit pretty nicely into our season five. Thank you for joining us. Go take a swim. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.